Salutations, my friends. And thank you for tuning in to another edition of Factions of Freedom. I'm your host, Noise Era, Freedom Faction, whichever one you prefer, and I am titled this episode, Origins of Communism, Modern Marxism, and Subversion of the West. I'm not alone in this endeavor. I'm actually joined by a local historian and a good friend of mine, Craig Fitzgerald, to break down what we're seeing with the communist invasion, the insurrection that we see becoming nationwide. Not only nationwide, but international. That's right. Outside of Antifa seizing autonomous free zones, we take a trip back to the past, back to the French Revolution, back to the, again, the origins of how this all started. Why? Because communism always sounds good on paper, but as far as the follow-through, it's never there. That's right, we get into this and more in this edition. But first, a few quick updates, ladies and gentlemen. If you haven't, make sure you listen to the special transmission I did, Zabellion. Ironically enough, it ties into what we're talking about right now, the Pentagon training uh, to essentially take on Generation Z. We talk about things like this, why that mindset is out there, and, 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 and just the radicalization that's taking place and more. Uh, join us as we switch up for this edition. And with that being said, let's start the show. That's fair. Okay. You hear him now? Yeah. It's not picking up on your audio. All right, good. (laughs) Salutations, my friends, and thank you for tuning in to a very special edition of Factions of Freedom. I'm your host, Noise Era, Freedom Faction, whichever one you prefer, and I'm actually joined by a very special guest, and friend, Craig Fitzgerald. Craig, my friend, how are you? I'm well, thank you, EJ. I look forward to being here, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'll uh, I'll give a little insider knowledge for people that pay attention. There are Antifa photos of me and Craig together. Uh, I wanted Craig to have us, to join us this week, and not only talk about the communist revolution, the insurrection that we're facing, the manifestation that we see happening today, but also the roots. Um, and basically why it's important that we talk about freedom, liberty, and expose these communists for the people they are in these crazy times. And uh, so a little bit of background for Craig because this is his first time on the show. Um, he's, he's, oh man, I'm a newbie compared to the amount of work he has. Audio listeners, you can't see it, but he essentially has a library uh, behind him. And it's a very wide library, which I've taken the time to just like scan over. He's versed in history politics, the esoteric, like occult stuff, dude, like homesteading. This was the guy that was going to talk to me about uh, doing an apiary. Um, (laughs) He wants to come over and help me with my garden. I won't let him do that because, you know, that's stuff that we got to do to bond together. But, you know, (laughs) without it being, without yanking your chain too much, Craig, you are a phenomenal man. And I'm very grateful to have you on the audience to drop some wisdom during these chaotic times. Thank you for joining us, Craig. Thank you again, and I appreciate it, and thank you for the kind words. Um, yeah, I, uh, I have a long history of a- activism, libertarian, uh, conservative right-wing, 9-11 truth activism, primarily what We Are Changed in New York City. I've uh, been a member of the John Birch Society, Constitution Party, Libertarian Party. It goes on and on. 
Uh, I've been doing this for 20 years or so, on and off, doing different things, homesteading included. And uh, I am a lay historian and a lay theologian, you could say, and, uh, and political scientist. Uh, I am a Freemason, uh, uh, and that may come up in our conversation. Um, history of the current insurrection we're seeing now and the infiltration that we've seen in the United States over the past 60 to 80 years, actually, and even longer, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think, uh, gosh, where do we get started, Craig? It's like, how do we, how do we break down to the people that what they're seeing right now is not the revolution that me and you talk about, like, all the time. They're seeing a manufactured, like, cultural force slash corporate revolution their ideologies are being manufactured and given to them. And we're seeing such bedlam, bedlam and mayhem and chaos that it doesn't make sense. It's like, how do we begin conveying the truth to people who have bought into a lie so deeply? Well, as someone who's very historically oriented, I always say, go to the root, go to the source. So in a very chrono chronological way, you know, communism, many people know, it's a synonym for communism is Marxism. And that's because Karl Marx coined the term communism in his book with Frederick Engels, The Communist Manifesto. Now, that was about 1848 or so around there, late 1840s. And, um, but his theories were based on think thinkers that came before him. And uh, Marx called uh, communism scientific socialism. So communism is a synonym for Marxism and scientific socialism is also a synonym for those two words. Now, socialism was coined by a man named Henry uh, St. Simon. Now, Henry St. Simon was a Jacobin during the French Revolution. Okay. And, a lot of this kind of comes out of, just to, just to get a yeah, quick. Right. And Marx was a big fan of St. Simon. He didn't exactly see eye to eye with St. Simon. Um, but of course, Marx was a socialist, and St. Simon coined the term. Now today, most people look at St. Simon as professing uh, what we call utopian socialism. And that's, of course, why Marx differentiated his socialism as scientific, because he wanted to be, this is more pragmatic. This isn't just some pipe dream, some crackpot utopian idealism. This is something that can be done through revolution. And that's, of course, what Marx taught. And that's why his Marx's socialism or communism is scientific socialism. Hmm. Now. The Jacobins that St. Simon was part of, now th this was a loose-knit kind of ideology in revolutionary and pre-revolutionary France. And they themselves were very influenced by the ideas of Adam Weishaupt and what we call the Bavarian Illuminati. Yes. Um, these ideas, Weishaupian ideas, uh, primarily were a lot of its 
fairly good egalitarianist, abolitionist type stuff. But when you take that to extremes, it becomes kind of totalitarian, authoritarian, what we call would call communism. And that's kind of what we're seeing with the with the whole defund the police movement, where it's like, we want police reform, but we're not trying to get rid of these people entirely. What you're doing when that happens, yeah, for sure, defend your space, but you're not understanding that we need like an, a neutral, unbiased arbiter that can like dispense justice on both sides. When you remove that, you have that, as you were saying beforehand, uh, that authoritarian rule. Mm-hmm. And I'm all for, you know, making it easier to sue the police and things like that. But yes, the, the total abolition of police forces is what you could call a totally Marxist agenda, or it, it goes back to the Jacobins originally. But what I'm saying is that the Jacobins in France and the Illuminati in Germany and Adam Weishaupt and the people surrounding these milieus, and also some milieus in England and America known as the Levelers, and the diggers, these groups are all basically interchangeable, whether it's, the Bavar- whether it's the Bavarian Illuminati, the Jacobins, or the levelers or diggers. St. Simon, Henry St. Simon, comes out of that milieu. He coins the term socialism. And, you know, Weishaupt was teaching that we needed to have an abolition of the family, an abolition of the nation, and an abolition of religion. And of course, this is plagiarized later on, 80 years later, by Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto. Now, Marx never cites Weishaupt for this, but that's where that doctrine originally came from. Um, uh, what happened is here in America, these ideals came during our revolution. Right. And during our revolution, the more radical faction were influenced by the Jacobins and were influenced by Weishaupt uh, for the good and for the bad. And uh, after the American Revolution, a lot of this Jacobin and Illuminati activity here in the United States was centered around what we know as democratic clubs or Republican societies. And actually, the, the political parties that we know help kind of developed out of these groupings. Um, it's just so weird hearing you say it because in a weird way, it sounds like you're describing that secret societies created socialism as another means of control. And, the, and, the, and on, that, on that scale, or at least on that thought process, my mind goes towards like Alice Bailey or Helena Blavatsky with the externalization of the hierarchy to where they create this like infrastructure of control and then they export it to see who they can basically inculcate. Mm. Absolutely. And Bailey and the Theosophists are very much related to the Fabian Society yes. who come later on and, and the, the kind of Anglo 
American branches of the socialist movement international. But so back to St. Simon and the French Revolution. So the French Revolution is definitely Illuminati inspired. The Jacobins are Illuminati inspired. But there's these Anglo-American movements, the, the levelers and the diggers. And the diggers are like the radical levelers. Leveler is like level society, makes society more egalitarian. Right. The more conservative levelers just wanted like voting rights for everybody. Like you didn't need to own land to vote. Whereas the more radical levelers known as the diggers wanted to totally uh, collectivize land ownership. So it was more communistic. Um, when, uh, when Marx in the 1840s comes out with the, his book, The Communist Manifesto, he starts an international group called the Working Men's International. And this is an international congress or federation of socialists from all over the world. Um, Pierre Joseph Proudhon uh, was a member. Um, Lysander Spooner, for your anarcho-capitalist audience, might recognize the name. He was also a member of this first international. Uh, Mikhail Bakunin, who of course is the 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 grandfather of anarcho-capitalism, he was at the first international. Uh, he of course was uh, excommunicated by Marx. Um, just to just to interject real quick, why is it that because this is something that we've talked about privately. Why is it that sometimes anarcho-capitalism sometimes gets confused with communism, or at least you have people that think they're communist having these anarcho-capitalistic views? Uh, myself, you know, I was definitely like a liberal-minded person, but growing up, I learned the difference between these two. Why do they? Why? Why can? Why is that? Uh, why is that miscommunication there? Uh, the term libertarian itself was basically coined by Mikhail Bakunin to describe his variant of socialism, which we now know as, or, or his version of communism, which we now know as anarcho-communism. He called it libertarian socialism or libertarian communism. And he was differentiating it from Marxist communism that he labeled state communism. Um, and... Uh, you know, to go off on how ANCAPs and American libertarianism took the term and kind of evolved it into what American libertarian means is a whole nother story that we can talk about one day, but we shouldn't talk about now. Um, uh, what happens with Marxism is it, it kind of is like, you know, the 1840s to like, 1900 it's gaining steam but you know it's an obscure german philosophy socialism in general is pretty obscure yeah france the republic is pretty socialist because it was founded by the jacobins and you know it goes into its dictatorship under napoleon and like i said there were some socialist elements here because of the jacobins and the illuminati but it didn't really pick up steam Mm -hmm. uh, around the Civil War era, there's some German immigrants uh, specifically come to join the Union Army 
to fight for abolition, to fight to end slavery, which of course is a noble cause, even though they're Marxists. Uh, right. So they have some good ideas about slavery, bad ideas about economics and social control. Um, <laughs> but but um, that's like the first time you, you hear about Marxists in the United States. And actually, interestingly enough, Mikhail Bakunin escapes from Gulag in Siberia. He was put in Gulag by the Tsar. He escapes from Gulag in Zy Siberia and comes to the United States during the 1860s, during the Lincoln administration, and like travels around the country by like Conestoga wagon or some craziness. And uh, he writes favorably of Lincoln and emancipation of the slaves and whatnot as well. These are just side notes to our conversation. Um, in the post-Civil War period, an American Socialist Party eventually is formulated. Uh, this has a lot to do with the populist mo movement and uh, Eugene Debs. But these people are Marxists. Uh, they yeah. call themselves socialists. It's just like today, calling yourself democratic socialist somehow means that you're not a Marxist or you're more into voting rights than the Soviet Union or something. But, and maybe it means that, but Debs promoted the Communist Manifesto, Marx's Communist Manifesto. So even though he's like, I'm not a Marxist, I'm a socialist, but at the same time, he's promoting Marxist ideology. So whatever. Well, if, if you don't mind me asking, why does it always seem or sound like socialism or communism or any of that type of stuff sounds good on paper, but in practicality, it never works through. Like the idea of a utopia, it sounds good, you know, but it never works through. And how come people never learn from history, seeing where previous countries or previous generations have tried this and it's failed? Why do they always feel like they can reinvent the wheel? Well, because it seems just 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 to add on to that, it seems like over here, like and this could be me just being like pro America to the degree that we are. It seems like we got this right over here with allowing like a certain level of freedom, having stops, checks and balances within government and giving people inalienable rights, recognizing their individuality, their freedom and their sovereignty. Why are we having like these totalitarian control systems try to work their way in here these days? Mm. Well, I think uh, there's the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Um, I think you know people look for perfection in in government. Uh, a vehicle of human nature. Because we so, talked, we talked about this this past uh, this past weekend. Whenever I was trying to figure out you know, what the, the, the definition between the corporatocracy and the, the technocracy, we were talking about how these communists these days, they want to they want to mimic places like Europe, Sweden, Germany, who have like these kind of socialistic connotations to them. But can you explain a little bit more on that? Why we want to adopt other nations, uh, political ideologies, but they don't, they don't, uh, they don't transfer well. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't line up the same as what they're thinking. Over there, they have practice policies that work, and they're trying to radically adopt them here, and it, it, just won't, it just won't transfer well. Well, I mean, I don't think it's ever transferred well. I mean, I mean, 
to go back to St. Simon and the origins of socialism, you know, if you look up the definition of socialism, it says state control over the economy and, and the means of production. All right. And then communism takes that further, where it's like not just state control over the means of production and the economy, but over all aspects of the society, education, governance, et cetera, et cetera, the market, everything. Um, America, you know, it takes big governance. It takes bureaucracies. It takes central planning for any sort of socialism to really work. Otherwise, it's just on a super communal, tribal, you know, level. Right. And Regional. most of the time that fails too, but it doesn't really hurt that many people because it's so few people. Right. But when you try to do it on a mass scale and you need the power of state, you need the you need bureaucracy, it's, well, first of all, it's just un-American. Yeah. Uh, America was founded on actually the opposite, the total opposite of limiting state power to its most radical rudimentary parts, the most necessary, what like just the framework that's necessary, no, uh, nothing else, you know, refining it down. Just the basics, just the fundamentals. No, no, there's no need for all these excessive checks right. and balances, this red tape, all this regulation. Right, right. because we have checks and balances, because our system is checks and balances, it can just be very simple. But we've had socialists, like I said, from the beginning of the American Revolution. They might have been called Jacobins or Illuminatis or Illuminatis, whatever. Uh, they might have been called diggers or levelers, but they were socialists. Um, and and this, then, this, this same ideology that we see, like, kind of, again, surfacing today, you were, you were mentioning it at the start of the show. They're trying to abolish the family. During the French Revolution, was this the same kind of thought process, abolishing private property, abolishing people's rights, basically trying to turn them into serfs of the state? Is this something that came out of the French Revolution? Yeah, so the Jacobin clubs are kind of a, a, a loose milieu. And the more conservative Jacobin clubs are just kind of like uh, what I said about the conservative levelers. They just want, you know, everybody to have voting rights. They just want to end slavery. Maybe they want some equality for women, things like that. Where the more radical Jacobins want to emancipate children from their parents want to outlaw the clergy want to close down the churches and actually the jacobins during the french revolution do close down churches wow. both catholic and protestant churches close them down and and some of them they burn down like we see later on with the bolsheviks but many of them that they don't burn down they just they close them down and then they reopen them and they reopen them as pagan temples, is what the Jacobins did. Mm. Uh, they, and uh, kind of civic paganism. So they would have like a goddess, uh, Marianne, kind of like the Liberty Goddess here. Mm -hmm. We call Liberty Goddess here in the United States, Colombia. In France, they call the Liberty Goddess uh, Marianne. 
Wow. So the goddess Marianne would replace the Mother Mary in the Cathedral de Notre Dame, which is dedicated to Mother Mary, Jesus' mother. All week, all week we've been seeing them tear down statues of Confederate soldiers, of slaves. Burning soldiers. churches. Burning, and I, I said that. As soon as they get done tearing down your church, taking down gods, Columbus, gods are next. What are your, what are your, like, where does, where does that come from? That these, that these communists, they come through, they, they, they mess up the present, distort the past, and, and, and destroy any hopes of the future. What's up with this, like, 1984, constant present, always manipulating, like, reality? Crap, like, is that where it comes from? Is that communist or is that 1984? Like, speak to that well, because it, it, it trips well, me out. See if you can go along with it. Orwell's 84 is a critique of what he saw as a member of the, he was a member of the Fabian Society, but as a member of the International Communist Socialist Movement and how it was manifesting around the world and what he saw, that's what 84 is a critique of, is what this is going to look like in the future. So when he came out after World War II, in 45, he was like, this is the future of socialism, this is the future of communism, not just in Russia, who was the big communist socialist power at the time, but in America and, and in Great Britain as well. And uh, yeah, that whole, that, that whole memory holding that they talk about in you know, 84, this is a critique. I mean, he saw Stalin. He saw the Soviets doing it. Book and burn. the Soviets learned from the Jacobins. And that, yeah, they're erasing history. They're repackaging it if they can, or totally getting rid of it if they can. It just depends. And it, it depends on who's doing it, depends on the time period, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And this is always their ideology is, is to take control, manipulate the facts so they can distort the future. I think that's, that's just the trippiest thing to me. Um, and I mean, even the fact that we're dealing with Antifa engaging in fascist, uh, fascist tactics, but that's, again, more of that mindset of that, that reverse psychology to where they're able to say, hey, we're not this, even though they're doing this. Is this, again, another tactic of these type of people to carry this out? Because I, I want you to speak on that and speak on the brown shirts and this color revolution that we see happening because, Craig, you're white, I'm black. Uh, we're having a conversation. You know, we've done, we've, we've done a fair amount of stuff together. We're going to be doing more here in the future, too. But what, what is up with this separation of people? Like, why are we not able to have unity? So I know that's like a loaded question, um, but speak a little bit more on the reverse psychology of Antifa engaging in fascistic tactics, and then we'll continue on from there. Yeah. Uh, well, fascism is a socialist ideology uh, itself. Uh, it comes later on. Like I was saying before, you know, this kind of post-Civil War period in America, socialism is just kind of gaining steam. You know, we see the infiltration of the unions in this period. Internationally, it's gaining a lot of steam in Europe. Um, and um, fascism itself, you know, Mussolini coined the term in the 1920s, in the, right after World War I. And he had been a member of the Italian Communist Party okay. all through World War I. So then, you know, World War I ends, you know, 1914, 1917. And then, you know, around early 1920s, 
he's come up with this new ideology called fascism. Now, he, he says it's a revolutionary socialist ideology. Mussolini says that himself. But he says it's anti-communist and it's nationalistic. So, I mean, really, this is just Mussolini is a smart man. He understood the Hegelian dialectic. And, of course, Marx understood the Hegelian dialectic. Not all followers of Marx and not all followers of fascism and Nazism understand the dialectic or how it's supposed to work. Yes. Well, maybe they understand it, you know, oh, the dialectic exists left and right, thesis and antithesis. But they never really think of the next part, which is the synthesis of thesis and antithesis. Yes. Yes. Um, and, uh, of course, Antifa today directly comes from the German Communist Party of the 1920s. Um, in 1920s Germany, which is known as the Weimar Republic, post-World War I Germany, uh, there was a lot of, you know, the Weimar Republic was very weak because Germany was looked at as having too much power during the war. So the Weimar Republic was very weak, and there was a lot of it. So much so that the German Communist Party, known as the, uh, the KPD, I believe, the Communist Party Deutschland, uh, mm. the KPD uh, had a revolution in the 1920s known as the Spartacus Uprising, and, and took control of the Weimar Republic for a very short time. And during that period, that's where we see the proto-brown shirts, known as the Fry Corps or the Freedom Corps, which are people who are conservatives, nationalists, anti-communists, mostly veterans who fought with the German army during the war, who were anti-communists like we have today, who are anti-communists. And they did eventually kind of go into the... the communists in the streets. So the KPD of the German Communist Party formed a militant wing known as the anti-fascist action. And their symbol was a circle with two red flags overlapping. And it said anti-fascist action. And of course, this was outlawed when Hitler took power, or at least after the Reichstag fire. All communist and anarcho-communist and socialist activity outside of the National Socialist Movement, which is the Nazi party, right. was outlawed after the Reichstag fire and all communists and left-wing subversives were rounded up and taken to concentration camps. Mm. Um, so any Antifa at that point were either put in concentration camps or switched sides, which some of them did, and mostly would join up with the brown shirts, which, like I said, the brown shirts grew out of the Fry Corps 
but the brown shirts was the militant branch of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which we know as the Nazi Party. And uh, th these were their street fighting men, so to speak, you know, before the Nazis took power, when they were just a political party vying for power in the streets and, and popular support in the streets with the communists. So they're fighting in the streets with the communists. And like I said, this, uh, this originally was the Freikorps movement who was fighting the communists. But then this National Socialist movement came out and kind of took over the Freikorps movement or absorbed the Freikorps movement into their brown shirt division. And then eventually the National Socialist Party liquidated the brown shirt division for the black shirt division, which yeah. we know as the SS. Yeah. Uh, the, the brown shirts were the SA. Um, Just to interject real quick, Craig, why does it feel like we're going to see that same type of thing today, bro? Like, I, I'm, I'm seeing Antifa grow in power and, you know, you got, you, you got them creating autonomous free zones in Seattle. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Do you think that we'll see that same level of escalation in our own time period with, 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 without yeah. proper, without proper, I guess, like repercussions? Like, is this going to happen unimpeded? Like, <laughs> what the heck? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really up in the air. I think we could go down a route of a communist insurgency that's successful. I think we could go down the route of a communist insurgency that's not successful. And in that scenario, it would be the option of, are we going to come out on top of this, trying to be the constitutional republic and living up to the principles that we should be? Or is it going to be uh, a, a, another side of the same coin, a reactionary totalitarianism? Um, I feel like I don't, don't think enough Americans support the reactionary totalitarianism. I think that, that the, the growing trend in Americans who are interested in Nazi, fascist, white nationalist politics is slightly on the rise. Mm -hmm. But I also feel that it's blown out of proportion because, yeah. as you know, vast numbers of the patriot movement and conservative movements and certain ends of the libertarian movement are thrown in the mix of fascist and Nazi by not just the Antifa, but by the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Anti-Defamation League, and of course, many of the other globalist talking heads that we know of. Um, but it's always, it's always a possibility. I don't think enough Americans would support the type of solutions that fascists would propose. Yeah. I think, that, I think that they want to stop left-wing insurgency. I don't even think enough Americans realize how dire the left-wing insurgency is right now. Yeah, yeah well, and let's, 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 let's talk on that because this is something we've talked about in private. I'm telling you all the time and the audience as well. I'm having to learn retroactively about you know, the communist infiltration 
how 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 diverse it is, where they have their financing, like their whole structure. I'm learning that like in the aggregate. Um, if you could spend a moment talking again about the infiltration and like how prevalent it is. I mean, from Governor Whitmer basically shutting people down, you know, this whole lockdown period basically being like a trial run for communism. Like talk about just 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 talk about the threat of communism and why it's no longer just kids in their basements, you know, huffing paint, uh, clicking on internet forums. It's much more complicated than that. Right. That's like the, that's like the exoteric, the outer veil is that communists and anarcho-communists or Marxists are just ne'er-do-well kids or, you know, anarchists or hippies are going to get over it or, or, or they're drug addicts. And, and those elements exist. And those elements can be part of the greater milieu. But those are more of like your useful idiot types. Yeah. Uh, your dupe, your dupe variety. Yeah. Um, they're not the adepts. They're not the masters in the situation. Um, the infiltration here in America has been going on since at least the 1920s. Like I said, Marxists joined the Union Army to get down with abolition, which was a noble cause, and that was in the 1860s. But the real, real infiltration what happens then is well the there's a there's a bombing by anarcho communists in Boston. The Haymarket massacre. It's blamed on like anarcho communists. Okay. And this leads to a big crackdown on communist and socialist activity. This is the first red scare. Yeah, with the 1920s, right? Right. And mad communists get deported because most of them at this time are German and Italian, you know, immigrants. Some of them not necessarily got proper paperwork, illegal, so they're sent back. Um, but the smart ones. And the native ones, which the socialist movement, not so much the communist movement, but the socialist party was much more native, much more waspy, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, membership than the communist party, which was much more Germans and Italians and Polish, you know, immigrants from Eastern Europe. Whereas the socialist party in America was much more native white Anglo-Saxon folks. So... Those elements were able to hide during the Red Scare to some extent. And this is when they start infiltrating the progressive movement. Now, the progressive movement is a bipartisan thing. It's both Democrat and Republican in the beginning. Theodore Roosevelt, as a Republican, is a progressive. Whereas Woodrow Wilson, as a Democrat, is also considered a progressive, okay? Um, the Democrat, the, the communists and the socialists realize they need to get into the democratic side of the progressive movement in particular. Yes. And th- this start, starts in the 1920s in particular, and it continues. In, uh, 
when Stalin takes power in the it's, late 20s. Just or, to interject real quick, yeah. just to get people like a people like me who, who who don't have the knowledge that you have, put into perspective, these are you these are Antifa's grandparents. Would that be appropriate to say? Like if Absolutely. there is a multi-generational like indoctrination or communistic family, this would be Antifa's grandparents. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Like and I, I, I can even help glue that together better. But um, in, the, in the 19, late 1920s, 30s, early 30s, Stalin purges the Communist Party in Russia of the Trotskyites. Okay? Now, Trotsky had formed the Soviet Union with Lenin. Right. But after Lenin dies, Stalin takes over and gets and, and exiles Trotsky. Well, where does Trotsky go? Trotsky goes to Mexico, Mexico, and most of his faction either go to Mexico or the United States, where they're coddled by the Rockefellers, and they join the Democrat Party. And who, who are these, these families, who are Trotskyite families who join the Democratic Party? These Trotskyites are the same families that then join the Republican Party in the 1940s or 50s and become the faction known as the neocons within the Republican Party. And these are Jewish, not to be racist or anti-Semitic, but they are Jewish, Russian families who were exiled from Russia under Stalin because they were Trotsky loyalists. They joined the Democratic Party as progressives to hide that they were communists, then infiltrated the Republican Party and seemed like the most fascistic, hawkish, right-wing Republicans in the party because they're taking the Republican Party away from its constitutional limited government principles to a more fascistic model, even though they're left-wing Jewish communist socialists. But see, they know that the fascist model, the Nazi model, they can use that model too. It's just a, it's the same thing. It's just a repackaging. The other side of the coin. That's why we get the, the rhino, the Republican in name only moniker, because these people are not Republicans. They somehow have infiltrated that party and taken these left, these left leaning like ideologies or these left leaning policies. They've infiltrated into the right, into the right wing. And that's why you have this weird, again, why we're having this discussion, because there's not, like conservatism or Republican beliefs or just being like somebody that's focused on liberty. That's been, that that's like been drilled down because of this type of infiltration. Is that a, is that an appropriate thing to say? It's like, because we're trying to drill down what are, what government's purpose is, what, what, what people's rights are, uh, a nation's, a nation's rights and so on. We've had to drill it down to this point because every time you have this infiltration that comes in and manipulates, uh, manipulates the party's ability, to go after rights or to, or, or to reclaim rights for people. Is that an, an, an appropriate way to estimate it? Yeah, I think both parties, the, the bad things that we've seen out of both the major parties in the United States is due 
to, in general, a socialist infiltration. Yes. And in, to be very specific, a communist Marxist infiltration yes. on, on both sides and somewhat of a, a fascistic side, particularly in the Republican Party. Um, but, but once again, the, it, the, these are tactics. Yes. And it comes full circle. And again, these are, it's, it's the dialectic. The, left the dialectic is all about the synthesis mm -hmm. of the antithesis and the thesis. So the synthesis is the important part, not the continuation of the conflict, but what's going to come out of the conflict. Like gun control, where they where they take the stock and then the sides and then the magazine and they limit how many rounds you're allowed to have. The synthesis, well, the end result, is getting well, rid of guns. I mean, you can you can use that kind of problem, reaction, solution scenario and superimpose that over all types of um, you know things that are happening. You know, um, laws that are being made, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I mean is more in an an ideological Hegelian sense. Yes. And this is how Hegel meant it. Whereas for the Marxists or for the socialists, the dialectic consists of capitalists or bourgeois or uh, yeah, capitalist or fascists as the, the, the antithesis. And there the thesis is Marxism, capitalism. And they're opposed to each other. Well, what's the synthesis of fascism and communism opposed to each other? We'd have to see, of course. And I think we're already getting, we're already seeing that. But let, let me get, let me go back. I don't want to confuse too much. You're fine. Remember, I said that Karl Marx started the, the this Working Men's International. Yes. Okay. This Working Men's International continued from the 1860s all the way up to the 19-teens, at which point in 1917, the Soviet Union took over the Working Men's International and changed its name to the Communist International. Okay? It's also known as the Common Term. You might have heard this terminology before. The common term. So from 1917, the same organization that Marx had founded back in 1850-something, that same organization continued under a new name, common term, under Soviet leadership. Okay. And that organization which still exists today, continued from then, from 1917, all the way up till the fall of the Soviet Union happens in 1989 or so, which is a psychological operation. We could talk about another time. Um, but it continues. China takes it over at that point. Huh. All socialist countries, like all the Western European socialist countries, Scandinavian countries that are socialist, they're all members of it. It's called the Socialist International now, not the Communist International.
because communism, that term, lost favor. But China being the number one socialist and communist country on earth has taken the reins of controlling this. Is this when they adopt like the red flag with the hammer and sickle? You broke up a little there. Uh, is this is this whenever they adapt the uh, or or adopt the red flag with the hammer and sickle? China. China that doesn't have a hammer and sickle. They have a red banner with uh, multiple yellow stars. I guess I'm thinking of all the graphics I've put up. Just that's a traditional yeah. Soviet Union flag is a red banner with a yellow hammer and sickle and a yellow star, a single yeah. yellow star. That was the Soviet Union's flag, or the flag of Russia when they were communists. Uh, but it's become an international symbol of communism in general. Um, but I say this about the international because the international still exists. And again, yes. you talked about the grandfathers of Antifa. The German Communist Party, the, the KPD, um, in the 1920s, they were part of the Communist International. They were beholden to Moscow. They were beholden to the Communist Party in Russia, in Moscow. because. They were a Communist Party of Germany, was a member of the Communist International. And who controlled the Communist International? Moscow, the Communist Party of Russia. You see? So all the Communist parties between 1917 and 1989, worldwide, including the Communist Party of USA, were beholden to the Soviet Union. And then the ones who claim they weren't were still getting funding from the Soviet Union. And then what complicates that is the Soviet Union has been funded from 1917 all the way to about 1978, 1975 by Wall Street and the U.S. State Department and England to some extent. And, and, and then, of course, Rothschild and, and Fred, I mean, Rothschild. Then, of course, uh, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, the original communists back in the 1840s, they were sponsored by the Rothschild family to write the Communist Manifesto. Yes. And, of course, Trotsky and Lenin in 1917 were set up, Lenin by German bankers and Trotsky by Wall Street bankers, namely the Harriman family from the Harriman Brothers Banking Association who worked with Prescott Bush. Prescott Bush was a partner of the Harriman Banking Firm. George Herbert Walker Sr.'s father. George Herbert Walker Sr.'s father. And this is 10 years before he started bankrolling fascism and the Nazis. So he cut his teeth bankrolling Marxists. Ten years later, bankrolls the Nazis. 
the other side of the coin, the other side of the Hegelian dialectic. Which at the end of the synthesis was the war. We were the end of the synthesis. Integrated capitalist socialist society. An integrated capitalist socialist society was then the thesis to the antithesis of communism. And that was the Cold War. And then when the Soviet Union fell, it was a psychological op on the West to think communism was gone and not a problem. Because it just, just interject, I guess, I have a question. Where does China come in on the scale of, of, of communism? Because it seems like these days, they're, they've become a pretty powerful world power with, with their communistic views, but they, it, it feels like they kind of came out of nowhere on the, on the scale of things. Is this because of elements like the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers basically being propped up and given, given this authority? Where, do, where yeah. does China come in like on the, on the history of communism? Absolutely. So the first communist country ever is Russia, 1917. The second communist country ever in history is China. Right. And China is com becomes communist in 48 or 46. Post right World after the war, right after World War II. Now, the, it had been brewing. There was a civil war in China uh, right after World War I. Between communists and nationalists. And the nationalists, the communists say Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists were fascists. But that's an oversimplification and kind of hyperbole. They were more democratic, kind of Republican. They looked towards the United States and England as a model. They were trying to be like us. They might not have been as free as we were, but they were trying to be like us. They weren't trying to be Nazis. And Mao, actually, uh, Chairman Mao, Mao Zedong, who was the leader of the Chinese communists during the 30s and 40s, he was educated at a Yale school, I believe in Beijing. So Yale had some... Yale, Eastern Establishment, possibly Skull and Bones, because that secret society does control Yale connection to Mao in that sense. Uh, then, of the course... That, it's the same way that... Uh, what, what's his name? Kim Jong-un. the same way that he was like raised in a little bit over here, a little bit in Europe, then basically put over there in North Korea after basically getting his education. Is that well, the same? Western educated, right? Like the, the Ayatollah or, uh, or, or Assad in Syria, they're all Western educated. Um, and then they take our teachings back and then they just demonize them and destroy people. It doesn't right, they flip them on their heads or something. I mean, you know, communism and socialism comes out of the Enlightenment, just like the American libertarian principles come out of the Enlightenment. So, you know, it's all about, you know, you take an idea and you mold it and it can become a monster. No, <laughs> you're right. It's, 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 you don't really think about it being like, 
one man's freedom is another man's terrorist. And I'm just seeing the stuff that, that, that's going on out there. And it's just so sophisticated, the, the, the manipulation, that it just trips me out. I'm like, how are people not seeing what's going on? How is there no context? Can they not see where this has happened before? I feel like you're just you're, you're talking about like all this historical evidence of where this same type of stuff has happened before. Yet, you know, we're we're falling into this same pattern. And you know, back to the China thing, it, it's subversion again, and it's infiltration again on our side, because, uh, and this is where the John Birch Society's name comes from, is that. After World War II, you know, we're the victors, right? We're the big dogs after World War II. Right. And um, we got operatives all over the world. And we got a lot of State Department and OSS people in China after World War II. And <clears throat> most of them are anti-communist, as most Americans were at the time, both anti-communist and anti-fascist. And... Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, they, uh, <coughs> they, uh, they were there on ground, and one of these OSS guys was named John Birch. For gaining ground. And they were killing civilians, and they were killing Americans, and they were killing Western business people who were doing business in China. And they were routing the nationalist Chinese. And he started to realize that the State Department was actually helping the communist Chinese, telling them where the nationalist Chinese positions were. And he was essentially betrayed by the State Department and was killed by the communist Chinese and the State Department never sent any OSS people to help him or anything like that or any of our soldiers or whatever. And uh, he was the he's considered the first martyr of the Cold War. Wow. Killed by the communists. And, you know, his name, most Americans don't know who he was or how he died or the circumstances, or why. And it was because at the time, the U.S. government, although we were about to fight a war with North Korea, we were actually helping the Chinese communists come into power by not helping their enemies properly. And... So, yeah, the, the Chinese communists are in full power by 1950, let's say, 1949. Mao is in power. But the, you know, Mao is, 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 is not a Leninist. He's not an orthodox Marxist. He's got his own views on Marxism. And so he still calls himself a Marxist, but he's come up with his own ideas that are now labeled Maoism. And it's more of an agrarian type of Marxism rather than an industrial Marxism. And this is where they took the people out from the farms, put them in the cities, said, hey, give us your kids. We'll re-educate them. They took those kids. Those kids went back home and they ended up killing the family. Is that? Well, that's, a, that's a little bit later on. 
That's in the 60s. Okay. During what's called the Mao's Cultural Revolution. So and at first... Just to interject before you go on, because I, I love hearing this stuff, and I think the audience should know it. Mm -hmm. Would you say that some elements of that are finding their way in today's society? Yeah. The, the, the Western Green movement is very influenced by Maoist agrarian principles. Yes. And this is but, where they think they can control the means of, again, production, consumption. This right. is that Hunger Games type reality where they're controlling stuff. Right. Well, you know, that's just the whole thing is that the market, markets are, they're like a living thing. Right. What they, their changes, their ebbs and their flows and the surpluses and the deficits are caused by the needs by the consumer. on the market, the stresses on the markets that are caused by us, the people, and our supply and demand of what we need in the market, you know, what we want. And that dictates to the producers what they produce and what gets produced and what gets surplus, blah, blah, blah. When you collectivize that, when you socialize it, when you give a bureaucratic state, a central authority, all this power to manage that, it's not going to work because, first of all, it's too much for any one body. Right. Then secondly, they're not the experts. The experts are the guys who are running it before you centralized it on the local level. So the more you collect, and then collectivation also lose incentive. So, you know, nobody wants to put in or do as much work because, you know, enough of these other guys are going to do it. or I'll still eat, I'll still reap benefits, even if I'm not actually producing because there's enough people over here producing. So there's all these pitfalls. I mean, Lenin saw this by like 1920. So 1917 to 1920. Lenin already sees it. They have crazy deficits in grain and then like crazy surpluses and, and stuff that they don't need. They said they have like surpluses in, in uh, clothespins, but not enough potatoes. So what's more important, wooden clothespins or potatoes? You know, so you get my drift. I mean, I'm oversimplifying. But because of this, the Bolsheviks, the, the Russian communists, had to synthesize right then. They opened the market up and made it a little bit freer a little bit more free market policies to allow the market to stabilize. And of course that worked for a time being. And then Stalin took him back to a nationalized, collectivized program for the war effort. But China, they became communists, like I said, by the 50s they were totally communists. But outside of Asia and supporting the communist revolution in Korea and the communist revolution in Vietnam, and putting some ideological money into some of the communist revolutions in Africa during the 60s, they're pretty quiet. Yes. The Soviet Union from like 19, from at least 
the end of the war from 1945 to the, to the end of the Soviet Union to the 80s, the Soviet Union is funding the majority of communist movements, socialist movements worldwide, and other movements. The anti-war movement in America, the anti-war movement in Western Europe, um, the ACLU, mm-hmm. um, the, 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 the Lawyers Guild, the U.S. Lawyers Guild. Uh, these are communist fronts. Uh, you know, they, these are thought of as American civil liberties institutions. No. Yet founded by Marxists. Uh, the ACLU, founded by white Marxists, interestingly enough. European Jewish white Marxists, not by people of color. You know, I... I There's like a handful of, you know, W. Du Bois, but... Yeah, W. E. Du Bois. I, I'm 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 hearing you break this down, and I know some of these people behind closed doors. They all believe it's a sham. Like I know me, like me and you, we're having conversations about freedom, liberty, like our rights, what we need to do to keep them, like the history of it, why it's important to practice these things, and more. I'm sure a lot of these people, if they're not talking about a sham of how much communism is, they're talking about how much they're able to control people. So, so is ultimately that what it's about? That's that's what it's about at the end of the day how they can manipulate people for their control because they're not actually fighting to give rights or to, or to, or to liberate these people. It's like a, it's like a fake liberation. And it's like, it's a fake liberation disguised as enslavement. Was an abolitionist. He wanted to end slavery. Right. But at the same time, Marx also called for a dictatorship. So another form of slavery. Uh, another form of slavery. Marx also called for uh, a central bank and uh, a graduated income tax. So, you know, as much as part of the theory is calling for what seems like liberation or egalitarianism, it's a double-edged sword. There's other aspects of these ideologies that, like you said, are very authoritarian very totalitarian, and you can't really separate the two from each other. But I think, you know, some of the activists, some of like the lower level people in these movements, whether they call themselves Marxists or they call themselves socialists or they just call themselves liberals or progressives, but they believe in some of these same ideologies, I think a lot of them are duped. Yes. And only get a certain level of it. I mean, I think that's the Communist Manifesto. And they can understand that to an extent. And to them, yeah, okay, it means all this liberation of society. It means setting up a new type of society where, you know, capitalism is 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 regularized regularized so much that it gives supposedly gives people more freedom oh um supposedly but um i mean i mean uh, but ultimately the people on the top know that you know, I think, I think a lot of low-level people 
believe in Marx's revolution as put out in the, in the manifesto by Marx. And see, the people who are sponsoring it today and the people who are the leaders of the movement, like the people who run the Chinese Communist Party, right. the heads of the Chinese Communist Party, they already know that the dialectic has been synthesized and that they've moved on to the next stage. And that a lot of these kids running around the United States, they don't even understand nope. that it's moved to the next stage. They don't understand how fascism and the, the creation of fascism was necessary in order for them to bring about the next stage. Yes. Because the, the, the synthesis of communism wasn't a synthesis of communism with free market capitalism. It was a synthesis of communism with corporatism. Yes. And corporatism was itself a synthesis of socialism and fascism. And capitalism, which is what, what Mussolini used as a synonym for fascism. He called corporatism fascism's uh, uh, synonym, meaning fascism is corporatism, corporatism is fascism. So, and corporatism is itself a synthesis of socialism and capital. So this, to, 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 to speak on that point, that's why we're seeing all these corporations from Nike to, you know, Target to Spotify to iTunes, right? That's why we're seeing like all these corporations come up with the culture. And this is what we were talking about just the other weekend, where for some weird reason, corporations have more influence than our government and our government isn't able to basically <laughs> regain control of like what people believe in. Is that about right? It's because people are going along with this corporate fascism, this corporatism, because, because that, is, is that the easiest way to describe it? Well, interestingly enough is after World War II, corporatism is absorbed by the West. So the Nazis and the fascists are beat and their ideology of corporatism is taken over by the Western powers, taken over by America. So now you have America coming out of World War II as, yeah, we're still fairly democratic republic, but we're more in, and we're still a capitalist free market, but we're more and more less free market, still capitalist, more corporatist model. Yes. Same yes. thing in Western Europe. They're democratic and they're, and they're capitalist, but they're integrating more socialist social programs, welfare programs, etc., into the economy. And therefore, they're becoming corporatist. Yes. So at the end of the war... with the communist countries for the Cold War. Then when the Soviet Union falls, communism doesn't really go anywhere because communist China's still there. But communist China and Russia absorb some free, more free marketism in. 
but it's not really free marketism, it's corporatism. But they're absorbing in corporate structures. So now we see another synthesis of the corporates, the, the, the more democratized corporate structure that we took out of the Nazis, which was a synthesis itself of the communists and socialists with the capitalists, again synthesized again by the Chinese communists. So that's the model that we see now, is Maoism or Chinese communism with the corporatist model. And that's a synthesis. So that's what the New World Order wants for the United States and America, is to make the next step of corporatism or fascism or communism or Hegelianism, which is to be more like China. What, where will the model go from there? Where will the synthesis go? I'm not sure. For the totalitarians, I don't know. For the individualists, the dialectic remains individuals, free zones, free you know, nations, free communities versus total statism. Authoritarian statism, so fascism, Nazism, communism, corporatism, theocracies, you know, Islamism, whatever. And that's the only, that's the real dialectic that's not being imposed by authoritarians. But if it's just two factions of socialism, it's just part of the socialist agenda. But it's not. And so what I guess I'm getting this, I'm trying to figure out how to break down the global con with global communism. that's like being deployed right now. You know, the United Nations has agenda 21, agenda 2030, as you said before, American elements of the green, you know, the green agenda, the green new deal, you see them pushing for this and, mm. and, and, and to break down, you know, corporatism and the technocracy. I'm trying to figure out how do I, how, how do I package this narrative for the audience? To break it down to them that again some of your ideologies are being manufactured you're like <laughs> your revolution has been bought and paid for by apple and google that's not the revolution you're looking for how do i how do i explain uh, not necessarily like revolution or rebellion but awareness of this corporate takeover of, 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 of private life well i one thing is history don't let it mis be a mystery always go back to the source where ideologies come from where this ism where this schism came from who coined the terminology what the planks of this ideologies are uh who was behind it who sponsored it who funded it so today when we look at what's going on you know look at the foundation mafias look at the you know, whether it's the Rockefeller Foundation or the Gates Foundation or the Carnegie Foundation or the Ford Foundation or the Clinton Foundation, these, all these foundations you can find out have been involved with funding leftist movements. I mentioned before, the Rockefellers helped fund the Chinese communists. The Rockefellers helped fund the Bolsheviks, the, the Russian communists. Um, they're still funding left-wing movements today. The UN, it's totally a, a Marxist communist plot. Yeah. Part, 
Planned Parenthood and George Soros fund Black Lives Matter, you know, and, and Hillary Clinton as well. And what did Hillary Clinton call black people? Super predators. Where do they put Planned Parenthoods and, uh, and, and, and poverty-stricken areas? Look at who's funding these people and what they're funding these people to do. So you're absolutely correct. It's just crazy. I, I think it's just crazy to, to hear about it like in a historical context and then to see that the, the very same energy of the, of the players still at work because it's still just defunding human it's still funding dehumanization and depopulation just in different just in different forms mm -hmm. yeah um i mean you name it i mean you name like you mentioned the u.n it's it was started by some scandinavian guy i can't remember his name um who was a member of the the norwegian communist party and of course, that was in the, in the late 40s after World War II. And like I said before, all those communist parties at that time were beholden to the Soviet Union. Uh, since the foundation of the United Nations, the head of the United Nations police force or the United Nations military has always been a Soviet, always been a Russian. Um, so interestingly about that is during the Korean War, which the Korean War, the U.S. were the main uh, army fighting the communists, the North Koreans, but we did it under the U.N. The U Korea was the, the first U.N. police action. And, uh, and sometimes, actually, we were fought under the U.N. flag. Well, our generals would complain that the North Koreans knew or like U.S. Uh, forces had to report all their movements to the U.N. at the time. Well, the head of the U.N. police force or military force was a Soviet agent, not just a, not a secret agent. He was actively, openly part of the Soviet army, the wow. communist Russian army. And so the U.S. directly reported to a Soviet general at his office at the U.N. what we were going to do fighting a communist army who is sponsored by the communist Chinese, who are themselves allies and sponsored by the Russian communists. They set us up for failure. Set us up for failure. Same things happened in Vietnam, just not as clear with the UN connections. Um, but so you see, the UN was integral and you know, setting, same thing today. Uh, I mean, at the time um, in the 19, 1960s or 50s, Russia, who was on the Security Council of the UN, they were protesting the Security Council. I think this was in the 50s or the 60s. I can't remember. They were protesting the Security Council because Taiwan, or Free China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, was on the Security Council, but Red China, Communist China, was not. So Russia was creating a stalemate, and the Security Council couldn't get anything done. Because Russia wouldn't vote on anything. Stalling the process. 
and put China on the Security Council. This is all important of how China became so powerful. Mm -hmm. Also, in the 1970s, under the Nixon administration, now Nixon gets a lot of the credit for this, but really it was Poppy Bush, uh, you know, George Sr. Mm -hmm. He was a UN ambassador at the time. And under the Nixon administration, they opened up China for the first time since the 50s, since the late 40s, excuse me, since China became communist. And they opened China up to trading with the West, to some American investment. And this was looked at as, as a healthy thing. Did George Bush Sr., whenever he went over to China, or whenever, I guess, whenever, uh, whenever Nixon and Bush went over to China, what, who did they have with them? Like, what was, I guess, what was, what was, what was the purpose behind opening up China? Because, you know, you hear about them saying, you hear about them basically being given their status that they have now, that there's rocket, that there's Rockefellers and Rothschilds with the Bush, or with the Bushes as they go over there to set China up to be later what we have today. During this time frame, what's going on? Sorry to interject. No, of course not. Um, it's this is when it begins with China, right? Like I said, China was set up in the first place, but between the late forties and the and even the nineties, China was bicycles and wood stoves. Yeah, for the yeah. China was very poor. They were a regional power. They weren't a world. a communist nation but china still wasn't a world power they weren't a nuclear power they were a backward they, they had a lot of territory because they're very big territorially right and they have a large population but they were not an economic powerhouse by any means right and nothing that is, like what we see today nothing like what we see today that ascendancy began like i said with bush during the nixon administration in the mid to late 70s but even then, it was a slow, incremental process. Correct. And that didn't do it. That opened it up. That probably made more American investors richer than it did help the Chinese. Yes. It helped the Chinese a little bit. It opened them up more, et cetera, et cetera. It got them more technologies. But through the 80s, some of that was curtailed by Reagan because Reagan was not friendly towards the communist Chinese and Reagan was focused on Russia. And of course, Reagan stood the Russians down in terms of the, the nuclear race. And at the same time, Russia economically was kind of falling apart because socialism don't work. Mm -hmm. And we had been propping it up since the beginning anyway. And some of that money had been dying off. Like I said, the, the money from, the, from Wall Street and the U.S. government to the Soviet Union started dying off in like 75, by the late 70s. So by the 80s, they weren't getting that money anymore. And they are also spending money all over the world, funding socialists and communists and revolutionary and subversive movements everywhere they can, all over the world. Um, when China 
gets down with the U.S. in the late 70s, China and Russia stop being allies, interestingly enough, because Russia, being the more orthodox communist and right. being the head of the Communist International, say, you're not being, you know, ideologically pure, Russia. I mean, China. You're not being ideologically pure. So they, they stop being good buddies. But China's still communist. Fast forward through the 80s, by the Clinton administration, 1994, the Clinton administration invites Chinese generals to the White House. That's when they start saying that it becomes like a revolving door because they're able to come in, do deals, take those, take those secrets back to China, reproduce like old aircrafts and stuff that we have because we're just well, giving it to them. At that point, when the Clinton administration brings the Chinese Communist administration into our administration, essentially, they give them or sell them, it's unclear, nuclear secrets yes. and other weapons technologies. And they, even worse, we could say, they make them preferred trader nations. So it means any foreign business that we do, any trade that the U.S. does, foreign trade, China's our first pick, no matter what. That begins in 94. And that is where the ascendancy really takes off. That's when China goes from bicycles and wood stoves mm -hmm. and a little bit of U.S. investment. power towards electric electric giving electricity to the whole nation electrifying the whole nation and now you have them doing deals with france saying hey we'll give you we'll give you masks we'll give you ventilators you just got to take our 5g right to them becoming right the economic powerhouse of the whole world yeah their manufacturing base of the whole world that's only happened since the late 90s, I mean, yeah. since the mid 90s, 94 on. So it was an incremental program. And, and the globalists were definitely part of it and funding it. Um, and when China, I mean, when Russia in 89 falls, the Soviet Union falls, and they stop being the head of the Communist International, China fills that vacuum. And China's that now. Right. And, you know, Russia, all they did was change their flag so it doesn't look like a communist nation and open up the economy a little bit, a little bit. to some corporation, free market stuff. But it's still pretty communist and pretty socialist. If you look at the Russian military, they still all use the red stars and the hammer and sickles. It's a psyop to let our guard down. Yes. You know, when Russia did that, well, right before Russia, the Soviet Union fell, we had that de disarmament program. And when we got rid of lots of nukes in the mid-80s, Russia said they were getting rid of nukes, and they either didn't get rid of nukes or went into other nuke technologies for better nukes. And while they were making better nukes and we were getting rid of our old nukes, 
we were not getting better nukes. Yes. So now Russia has better nukes. China has better nukes. And we have. And we're kind of sitting on some old stuff and our levels are way lower than what they should be. See, I'm all about non-intervention and peace and not going to war for the most part. Not intervention, not pacifism. But I believe that American America can only be non-interventionist yes. and not be an empire by exerting a certain level of national power. And how we do that is by having the biggest, baddest nuclear hydrogen weapons there are and having the biggest, baddest aircraft carriers and nuclear submarines. And we've slept on that, mm-hmm. and China in particular, and to some extent Russia, have been developing. Yes. And in the next, if, if we go to World War Three with China, we can get, be guaranteed that Russia will be allies with China. I'm going to pull up real quick, Craig. I want to get your opinion on uh, this article that we put up before coming onto the air. It talks about uh, these protests that we see going on right now. It's just, just, just to switch gears because I want to get your, uh, your opinion on, on, on present day issues. But, but just it, like the communists of the past, whether it was the Bolsheviks or the Maoist Chinese, were funded by the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the Foundation Mafia that we now call, and we could add Soros and the Clintons to that milieu, and these other uh, Wall Street interests, the Antifa of today, the Revolutionary Communist Party of today, the Black Lives Matter movement of today, et cetera, et cetera, is being funded not only by those same globalist foundation interests, but also by the Communist International, which is no longer run by Russia, but run by the Chaikovs. Yes. I I think, uh, I'll be honest, I think that's what terrifies me, is knowing that we have, it's not so much that it terrifies me, we have, people operating here in America that obviously have like foreign interests back and behind them. And they're basically being paid uh, to destabilize things. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention this briefly because the, the headline's crazy because I, Antifa seizes police, Seattle police department sets up ISIS style Capitol Hill autonomous zone as mayor Durkin orders a six city block area abandoned. Now, I think that's kind of crazy. Uh, the autonomous zone, seizing area. Um, what are you, I'm sure you saw, you, you've seen this. What are your thoughts on this? This is, to me, I feel like it's unprecedented. You're literally having people go out there and just like <laughs> claim like a piece of land as if it's their own. Like, good Lord. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? On Antifa seizing a police department and setting up what, setting up a, a an autonomous zone. Quote, unquote, yeah. Well, the headline itself, the, the ISIS style is a little hype, hyperbole. A little inflammatory. Yeah, that's a little hyperbole, but um, I get it. ISIS did kind of, the ISIS zones in Iraq 
were an ISIS autonomous zone or, or whatever. So I get it. Yeah, calling an autonomous zone, that is uh, an anarcho kind of tactic. I mean, I think the, the term temporary autonomous zone was coined by um, Hakeem Bey or Peter Lamborn Wilson. He has a book called Temporary Autonomous Zone. Um, whether it's communists, whether it's anarchists, uh, a lot of times they've done this in the past. This is not uh, anything kind of new. I mean, if you look at like what the Black Bloc did in Seattle back at the World Trade Organization protest back in the 90s, or if you look at what Occupy Wall Street tried to do at Zuccotti Park in New York City. Is this kind of what they did too at the, the North Dakota Access Pipeline where you had the protesters, the water protectors, right. just like set up like their own area? Would that be considered right. a I mean, you've even, seen, you've even seen people in the Patriot Movement do this, like the Bundys right. uh, did it uh, at the on some BLM land, I think, and they also did it on... Some other, they did it twice in two different areas of the country on federal land, and it was basically the same concept of an autonomous zone or a temporary autonomous zone, although it was done for different reasons and for different ideological uh, standpoints. Um, but yeah, this is pretty crazy. I mean, essentially, what it means is that the city has lost control. Yeah of a, an area yeah. and that the Antifa or whoever's running the show are claiming that they're in control. Um, what, what troubles me more than that headline is a related headline that Antifa is asking for armed volunteers yes. to now show up to be the police force of their little communist or anarcho-communist micro-state that they've created. Yes. Because that's essentially what it is. They might say, oh, it's not a state, it's a temporary autonomous zone, or it's an autonomous zone, but that is a micro-state. That's what an autonomous zone is. It's a micro-state. It's a, 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 a community. Uh, I mean, a state, you know... I could get off on terminology. No, no, you're, you're, you're fine. There's definitely people that are saying the same thing, that it's like a flux state right now. Um, right. W would this be considered, you know, with this going on, like you said, been trying to recruit people, uh, volunteers, so to speak, to become the police. Would Is that like brown shirt style tactics? Is that like, what? where in history has this happened before? Uh, I mean, I know you just mentioned. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's pretty much all socialist revolutions have. This is very old. I mean, uh, there was a, a a socialist uprising in Germany um, around the time that Marx uh, was uh, active teaching and. Um, and it might have been right before Marx came out with the manifesto. And, you know, they, that was where the barricades, this concept of creating barricades in the streets and the activists barricading themselves off and that, like, yeah, creating little neighborhoods that are like the revolutionary epicenters and that are 
cordoned off from the rest of society. So this has been going on in revolutionary movements forever. I mean, the Bolsheviks, when they took power in Russia, it was incremental. You know, first they just had a section of a city. Then they had the whole city. Then they just had a province or a state. You know, so the Soviet Union wasn't like, in 1917, the government collapsed and the, and the Soviets had control in general, but they only had control of like a city, the capital, and they had to eventually have a civil war and, and fight the opposition to get complete control. Yeah. Um, so it's, a, it's the same thing. So we've seen over and over. I mean, I, I use Occupy Wall Street as an example. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, the Bundys as well with the BLM. The Bundy, that's a good example for the Patriot side. It's just a tactic. And there's actually nothing wrong with the tactic. I think, I think it's a quite interesting tactic uh, of creating autonomous zones. Uh, they were, it was used during the, uh, the Spanish Civil War by the, the Spanish anarchists. You know, they essentially created uh, this Spanish Republic uh, that was outside of Franco's government, where it was more anarchistic and more socialist and more democratic. Um, let me get your opinion on something. Just, I, I know it seems like I'm always cutting you off, Craig, but I just want to, I want to pick no, your no. stuff. No, just like asking for perspective, brother. Oh yeah, all the time, dude. Um, why does it seem like I feel like we're gonna have people on the left try to use what we just talked about with them setting up that autonomous zone to act like they're patriots? Why does it feel like they're gonna try to come off as they're as though they are the true Americans? <laughs> That, that's a, it's a, it's a very old tactic. I mean, yes. the Marxists have been doing it, like I said before, since at least the twenties, kind of wrapping themselves in the American flag and making their issues somehow American issues, like free speech issues, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I think that there, that's a very real uh, threat is that we're already seeing that happening that, you know, this is just, these people are just Americans. They're just fighting against racism, and they, they just want to see America live up to its foundational principles. The thing is, is the foundational principles don't call for all this other stuff that the people are calling for. Yes, the foundational principles, by extension, may mean more egalitarianism, may mean no slavery, and things like that that we can agree with them about. But total control of economic fathers were calling for. But this is something that these socialists and communists and modern activists are calling for. Um, it's kind of like a where do you draw the line yeah. scenario. And that's how it always is yeah. with, with these type of movements. And I, I don't think all of them necessarily know how far it naturally will lead. Well, I mean, shoot, we, you, we've talked about this, and I think everybody listening understands, man, the if we were ever to be invaded by real communists, the communists that we have here would be the first ones they get taken out because, like you said, they need useless idiots. Um, this is the last thing I want to bring up, and I'll start closing this out for you because I, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. 
Uh, we put this up just before coming on to the show with you. We put it up June 10th. It's from Just the News, Not the Noise by Carrie Sheffield. It says Americans, 49% to 34%, reject the use of military for crowd control amid George Floyd po- protests, the poll finds. Um, I'll go ahead and say it. I don't, I've never, I was never down for the military to be used against people. Um, I would like to think that's what the police are for, but I feel like the extreme nature in which these protests are being driven to is forcing this kind of like, this kind of response. What are your thoughts on the protests and the potential use of military being used for crowd control? It's a, it is a very slippery slope. And, uh, you know, in general, I have my concerns about it. Um, constitutionally speaking, uh, both the, the legislature and the president at the federal level can call for the militia and the military for civil unrest. There is a constitutional ground for that. And Trump has basically said there's somewhat of a national emergency. I don't think so far most of the federal forces we've seen are being sent at the president's behest. I believe they're being sent at state's governor's behest. Also, we're also seeing a lot of militarized police forces that are kind of indistinguishable from the National Guard. Correct. Um, The thing about it is, as soon as a protest or assembly becomes unlawful, the government legally, by the letter of the law, by the letter of the Constitution, has the right to then at that point declare it to be an unlawful assembly and say, leave. And if you don't leave, you're resisting arrest, etc. Leave. So my advice to the peaceful protesters, to the legitimate anti-police brutality protesters, is if you see rioters, if you see people lighting fires, if you see looters, if you see violent action, assaults, whatever, you need to proactively stop it or be involved in stopping it and alienating the individuals or groups of individuals who are doing it and possibly work with the authority. Here are the troublemakers, here's us. Because what happens is most, and this is what happens on the left, most left-wing organizers get into this anti-police mindset and it gives you a tunnel vision. Mm-hmm. But, the, and look, it's as easy to, for an assembly to become unlawful by these two things. Block pedestrian traffic. Your assembly is unlawful. You waived your First Amendment right. Block vehicular traffic, vehicles, cars. You waive your First Amendment right. So you start, you do any of that. So it's as simple as that. 
that they can start saying, you don't have a First Amendment right, move along. I feel for peaceful protesters out there, even if I ideologically, stuff down but are they doing their due diligence to alienate the bad guys in the protesters are they doing their due diligence to inform the authorities of who they are and who who the the agent provocateurs are yes and most of the time they're not so if there's any black lives matter people out there or People in the greater anti-war movement or grant, greater, you know, holding the police accountable movement out there. I think sometimes being less confrontational with police, particularly in a situation like this where things are out of hand, yeah, is going to better. Well, they want to be talking to people that are level-headed out there too. Hardcore, but. This is a situation where there's people who the cops might be brutalizing who they fucking deserve it. And the cops are brutalizing, pardon my French, and the cops are brutalizing somebody who doesn't deserve it because the people who deserve it created this chaotic situation. So it's a very slippery slope. You have to be very careful. People have to be careful. I, once again, if you're a protester, you're a peaceful protester, rather than make it all about the police and all about all the military's police or the military's cracking down, make it about the people who made your protest unlawful. Yes. And I think we'll see this cleaned up in the near future. I agree. I feel like this, you know, I've been telling people this when I go around talking that I feel like this is a generational thing that we have to be held accountable to people in our own generation and we have to check them. We have to keep these people in check. We're expecting other people to come through, come save us. We see these problems. we got to get out there and go do the work. This is a problem that our generation has to fix and that's why it's so rough because we can't pass the buck. we got to get this fixed now. Uh, well, that's what's been happening so long is pass the buck, pass the buck, mm-hmm. uh, you know, put it off, not believe in something. Oh, it couldn't be that. You know, believe the PSYOP. PSYOPs are... Yeah, the psyops that they've been running, um, you know, just the the communism's not a threat anymore. That psyop has been so instrumental in how China got so powerful, mm-hmm. and how we opened up our back door to let them come in. They're like, ah, they're they're okay, they're all right, they make stuff, you know. Um, I know you want to wrap it up. Everything. And now they now they make your drugs. Now they make your food. They make your vitamin C. They make all these things. Just trust this. Just just trust this. Don't worry about where it comes from. No. You don't want anything American made. You don't want to help out that mom. We don't need manufacturing here. No, just play on your iPhone. You'll be all right. You know, boo-boo kit and stuff. It's it's ridiculous. But Craig, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. I wish uh, I, I wish we had more time. I hope, things, I hope things de-escalate because I want to have you back on in the future to talk about militias and everything else that's going on, our rights and basically all that we can do. I'm praying that I'm praying to God that this de-escalates and that you don't have to come on about that. Uh, but we're definitely going to have to have you on to talk about, again, the history of things, the context of what's going on. 
uh, and more. But before I let you go, final words, what do you want to leave the audience with? I feel like that's a, it's a loaded question for sure. You've got a lot of different things that you could say now and you'll say in the future. But what do you want to leave the audience with? Uh, well, you know, the, the one thing that I feel like I lacked in, in kind of laying out the chronology for you is that during the 1950s, uh, Senator McCarthy tried to clean up Hollywood, the government, the labor unions of the communist infiltration, and he was laughed at, and he was ostracized, and he was pushed out, and this was part of the PSYOP that communism wasn't a threat. He knew it was all the way up at the federal government level, and that never panned out, and they never cleaned up the federal government. Then in the 1960s, you have the weathermen, and this was a communist movement in the 1960s, and I didn't get to touch on this, but those same weathermen are behind the Obama administration. They're behind the refusefascism.org or whatever, which is the official Antifa group in the U.S. that's channeling all the Soros money, all the Rockefeller money into Antifa and BLM and all this. So, again, it's a long history of communists from Marx to the Bolshevik Revolution to communist infiltration here to the Communist Party here to the weathermen to that infiltration of globalists. You know, Barack Obama's real father wasn't a Kenyan. He was a communist. Look yes. it up. Who is, I love you. Thank you for having me on the show. Who was uh, just real quick? Who was Larry something or other? Who was that? Who was that weatherman that basically trained Obama? It, uh, it's, it's, uh, um, me right now because I know uh, Saul Alinsky wrote Rules Rules for Radicals. He dedicated that book to Lucifer during that same time frame. It was a I forget yeah. whose name was. Alinsky is a bit earlier, and Rules for Radicals is a bit earlier. But Bill Ayers. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Bill Ayers is Chicago. He's he's like the founder of Weathermen, him and, and Bernadine Dorn. Yes. And both of them, yes, were instrumental in the rise of Barack, Barack and Michelle Obama. And, um, the, you know, the, 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 the Chicago communist thing and Barack Obama's mother's family mm -hmm. and Barack Obama's real father's family with, with the CIA. very much connected to that whole milieu there yes and work with the cia this is we're, i think it's just crazy because we're casually talking about the communist infiltration leading into the deep state creating certain presidents installing them in the power and it's just crazy because we don't understand the history of it and they've manipulated it all but craig i want to say thank you so much for joining us my man i feel like we again we hardly touched the surface but i'll definitely have to have you back on uh, always where can people find more of your amazing work if or, or if they want to get in contact with you because we didn't my god we didn't even talk about like your books and all the other projects that you're involved in uh, but if people want to get in contact with you how could they do so well people can just find me on facebook on craig Fitzgerald, and you know you'll recognize the face <laughs> uh, i don't i'm not running any blogs or organizations at the moment like i've done in the past um and uh, I'm, I'm working on some book projects, but I'm not ready to announce them. And 
uh, yeah, pretty much that's it. If you're, if you're interested in talking to me about any of these subjects or more, you can contact me there. Um, yeah, there's so much more we talk about. Uh, we could do a whole nother show on this subject and obviously the other subjects that relate, my friend. And uh, I thank you again for having me on the show. It was a great honor to be here. And keep up the good work. Godspeed, brother. Godspeed. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Uh, if email, if they want to email you, can I put that in the description bar below just in case they want to yeah, ask just any like historical the Craig, questions? The Craig email, yep. Okay, I definitely will. Well, like I said, thank you so much, Craig, uh, for donating this time. I, I'm, I know I've got a lot more to go research and go look into. That's why I wanted to have you on because the man knows his stuff and he's definitely going to be back on again uh, to blow our minds. So thank you, Craig, for joining us. Stay safe out there, brother. Likewise, you too. Have a great day, bro. Be well. There he goes. Craig Fitzgerald. Ain't even man. historical context as to what we're facing and why we really need to start getting basically our act together. These days are not normal, and that's what they meant whenever they said the new normal. That's what they're doing when they signify wearing new masks and doing all this crazy stuff. Uh, but I want to say thank you to Craig Fitzgerald for joining us and dropping these bombs. I'll put all of his contact information in the description bar below for future reference. But like I said, ladies and gentlemen, that's all I really have for you guys and gals. And if you have any questions, feel free to email me. I'll have it in the description bar below. And as always, guys and gals, stay vigilant. Expose lies and share truth. This is Noise Era, Freedom Faction, out. <laughs>